0: I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to UpZoned. Hey, everyone, welcome to another episode of UpZoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, a planner in Kansas City. And joined with me today is, once again, Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Welcome back, Chuck.
1: Hey, Abby. So nice to talk to you.
0: Always good to talk to you. And I feel like I always have to update you on the weather situation here. Yeah. It is now warm. We had a 65-year temperature day the other day, so I'm in much better spirits.
1: (laughs) Well, I was (laughs) walking my dog last night. I realized i had no hat on i had my thinnest pair of gloves on i had my jacket unzipped and i'm like oh it just feels so warm and it was 28 degrees yeah (laughs) but you know that's like 60 degrees warmer than it had been so you know feeling good
0: yeah i think the whole country is feeling a lot better after that situation a couple (laughs) of weeks ago so much better Well, the article that we are covering is a little different today because it is not an article that's based in the United States or North America, like usual. We are covering a story today called The Last City of the 20th Century. It was published in Slate and written by James Dan. The last city the article is referring to is Christchurch, New Zealand, and this city was devastated almost exactly 10 years ago by an earthquake, which killed 185 people, and it devastated countless of former residents. The tragedy prompted the community at the time to reimagine their city. Residents of Christchurch had put together a plan to rebuild, and that plan had included tactical projects and small urban interventions that they were they were implementing that were slowly revitalizing the city. However, the national government ultimately rejected the community's drafted plans and instead came up with its own version, which they called the Blueprint. This plan was developed in around 100 days behind closed doors, and it primarily focused on rebuilding the city through projects. So it promised a stadium, a convention center, and many other Big ticket items that were intended to bring back international tourism. Supporters of this government plan touted the blueprint as setting the international benchmark for urban design, innovation, and livability. (laughs) Um, So implementation involved, yeah, all (laughs) the buzzwords. (laughs) (laughs) Blah. So. Implementation involved the national government essentially buying up blocks of the city and applying strict top-down regulations on how the city would be rebuilt that shut out a lot of other people from rebuilding their city. and, And it basically allowed a handful of connected developers to be involved in this. And now, because of COVID-19, tourism has slowed. It has halted the opening of many of their, their big items, such as the convention center. One of the saddest parts of this city, it's noted in the article and, and in the title, it says that Christchurch had the chance to rebuild from the ground up as the first 21st century city. And instead, the their government decided not to do that. They applied what we would call Robert Moses' tactics and, you know, really attempted to build a city where their international audience could go almost anywhere and get the same kinds of projects, which is really disappointing. So today's discussion, I think, is more of a therapy session than anything, at least for you, Chuck. I personally was not in the loop with the events at Christ Church. And maybe you have a little bit more knowledge about what went down there, but to just reading this article, it's so, such an incredibly disappointing outcome for the residents who really deserved better.
1: Yeah. When I read this, my reaction was just sadness. This is very sad. You know, I remember when this happened. This was a time very early in Strong Towns. You know, I was writing a blog and doing just a little bit of speaking. I remember it distinctly happening though, but even more than the, the earthquake and the destruction. I remember having conversations with at CNU at the Congress for the New Urbanism with people from New Zealand, people from Christchurch who were, you know, involved in the kind of those early days of the bottom up energy and they would fly over here for the Congress for the New Urbanism, they wanted to chat with me, they wanted to chat with Mike Lydon, they wanted to chat with the uh, people from Project for Public Spaces. They were they were very very interested in how do we implement these bottom-up visions that we have? How do we keep people involved? How do we you know, have what we do reflect the neighborhood and the community? And I remember a couple of years in a row, we were, we were having these beautiful conversations. And I, it was humbling for me because I've never been to New Zealand. I have never been to Christchurch. I would talk to these people about it, and they clearly loved their city. They loved the place. They were from there. They had the beautiful accents that I could listen to all day. You know, it was, it was a very charming, delightful conversation. And I remember just in successive years them becoming a little bit more frustrated with the way things were going and, and to the point where I would get emails from some of them saying, this is going off the rails, like this is going the wrong direction. H- how do we fix this? And I, quite frankly, I don't know. I didn't know. I I don't know the politics. I don't know the people on the ground, but I, I think you can look and see that the title of this article, you know, the last, the last project of the 20th century, the last city of the 20th century, to me really captures it. There was this idea in the 20th century that I think became dominant and dominant throughout much of, of that period of time. And I think we can think of it as, you know, the Kennedy administration, although I, I don't say this in a partisan way. But the idea of the Kennedy administration was that let's get the best and brightest people in and then empower them to make the decisions and we will have a better America. Like Everything will work out great. This is the Robert Moses approach. Let's just get smart people, give them a lot of power and money and let them do. This is why we have the Federal Reserve. This is why we have you know, federal bureaucracies. This is why we have a whole bunch of things. It's this theory of change that if we just get real smart, college-educated you know, theoretical great people, great minds in place, and give them money and power and authority, they can shape the world in this more perfect image. I think urban renewal comes out of this. I think the interstate highways comes out of this. And what we see, and I, I do feel like, the mindset is shifting. And so Christchurch may be the last city that really where the idea was: forget what people are doing, forget what is going on on the ground, forget human lives. If we can just get really smart people in place, they can come up with the right mix of stadiums and convention centers, and you know, properly designed parking ramps with all the, L, you know, the LEED certification this and the blinged out that, uh, and it will be a, a great city. And I hope we've learned from this that it just doesn't work. It doesn't. It doesn't work that way.
0: Yeah, I think it's difficult for you know, the status quo to change though. It, when disaster happens or when we have this idea that we want to rebuild, it, it's like our society as a whole automatically goes the, to this idea that we should just dump money into rebuilding and let a small handful of people manage that. I am of the opinion that how a community is built, who is building it actually matters. And there's this perception that that the value of a community is derived through these big flashy projects and whichever city has the most of these big flashy projects is going to be the best city in the world. And, you know, this is not just New Zealand. This is all over the world. It's if we just had the baseball stadium, if we just had the convention center, then we would be a great city. And I, I think, you know, with strong towns, we often have this conversation about that great places are not the manifestation of big projects, and they certainly don't cultivate the kind of cultural allure that makes places interesting or long-lasting. And places that have endured historically are places that were built by lots of people and built incrementally over time. And it's just very sad at the end that the author alluded to the fact that they're leaving Church for good. And in a lot of cities where they get stuck with the status quo and they can't get past this intense need to micromanage everything and to try to mandate outcomes when rebuilding a place, I think creative people are going to get sick of that and they are going to leave because there are people who want to be invested in their places. And when you keep hitting walls, eventually people are going to go to places where they are embraced to be right. a part of their community.
1: To me, the, the most telling part of this article was maybe a, a little bit of a throwaway from the author. But he talked about all these different districts that they created, these precincts. Yep. Um, <laughs> and do you, you pick up on this too? It, yes. It, it, was, it was just, I mean, I thought of your power and light district, quite frankly, You know, which I, I think we should talk about in, in this. But you know, one of the things I came up with was a, an area they called the Innovation Precinct. And that was where, you know, we're going to have entrepreneurs and all these people come in. And and of course, it's, it's not turned out that way because you don't just create like boxes and then put people in it. And then, you know, innovation appears. But they talked about some of the other districts they had. And I'm just like, they have a justice and emergency service district. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. What is that? And then they have a rental car district.
0: Yeah, that's the one that I want to visit when I go to New Zealand. Is those well, two districts specifically? You, you can
1: picture planners sitting there, <laughs> you know, going, uh, "Well, we need emergency services. Well, let's create an emergency services district. And well, we of course we need rental cars, so let's create a rental car district. And I think of like the analog that works goes to my friend Jason Roberts with the Better Block. He lives in the Bishop Arts District out in Dallas. And I remember at one point, you know, he's like, people here like to bike. So we called it the Bike District. And I'm like, that's how you name a district. You name a district after like the things that they're known for, the things that they're doing. The Bishop Arts District is a, a place where you have a lot of artists, a lot of, you've got a lot of kind of eclectic restaurants and things. It is not a name that was imposed as an aspiration for what the place would become, but it's a name that that was born out of the existence that was there. I look at your power and light district. I know years ago, we had this debate at Strong Towns about the entertainment district in Omaha, and you know, the idea was, let's just put some lines on a map, we'll give it a name, and then we'll pour a bunch of money into it trying to infuse life into it. The reality is, I go to Kansas City, I go to Omaha, there's a lot of like amazing things going on in different places, but it's generally not proportionate to the money that's been spent there or the effort that's been done to kind of brand it in a certain way. Christchurch feels like It took every wrong thing that, you know, Kansas City did with the power and light district, Omaha did with their entertainment district. These places did, you know, trying to create these artificial things. And they did those. And I think the saddest part is that their natural core heritage, the natural thing that was kind of welling up, was way more authentic, way funkier, way better. And I think, you know, would have gotten them someplace beautiful. What they quashed is what makes me so sad.
0: Yeah, that that is the saddest part is that they completely quashed the more organic creativity that was coming out of this that they really could have leaned into to create a place that was interesting, that people want to be. The idea of having these strict districts is one that kind of, it just always boggles my mind. I mean, I live in a neighborhood that you might call like the Italian district. You would never lead with that. It would be really weird to like build a new place and say, This is gonna be the Italian district. Hey, would be really mad about that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All you Italians move here and everyone who likes pizza And uh, Spaghetti, move (laughs) to this neighborhood because this is where the Italians are at. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
0: Could you imagine? So so that's exactly, you know, we accept it now as the Italian district because that's just where, that's where Italian people settled a long time ago. And a lot of people are still here, but lots of other people are still here too. So when you brand something, it really is supposed to follow the culture and we get that mixed up a lot, and and I understand that there's this kind of need to market a place, but it's I, it just gets so convoluted when we're when we're really applying it to different places and and trying to make it uh, into a development project, which is I think what they did here. Uh, another point that the author brings up and kind of the the lessons learned portion of this article towards the end is. is they talked about not taking too long, which I think is really interesting. Because That was an
1: interesting point. Yeah.
0: I think it's an interesting point because I think about, well, basically what the author says is that people are adaptable and they will learn to live with things that are left in the, in the past. They will learn to live without it. And I think when thinking about North American cities, That's exactly what happened in the 1960s. People left the cities, a lot of people, mostly the white people, and they learned to live without their downtowns. And it's taken a long time to try to reinvest in downtowns across the country to varying levels of success. So I I think that that is an important point because you don't want to leave places sitting disinvested in for too long because people will... They'll build new preferences. and in their case, they saw a lot of new malls on the edge of town. They saw retail speculation, suburban sprawl, all the things that we experienced and I guess continue to experience in a lot of ways. they they began to experience that in the past ten years, which I just thought was I thought that was really interesting. and we, we talk about the idea of incrementalism a lot of the time. And I, I think people get confused when they hear that because they think that means slow and it doesn't necessarily mean slow it just means in many pieces like if you think of like how something happens fractally like it's just in many bits it's not necessarily fast or slow it could be either way and i think that the the idea of not letting things sit follow too long is an important one
1: right you brought up marketing earlier and i I think it's an interesting way to frame this because We can look at brands and i'm trying to have one come to my mind but a brand that uh, maybe they don't come to mind because they don't last very long a brand that says here's what we are that is in sharp contrast to what they actually are right or a brand that comes out and says uh this is what we want to be and we're going to market this but like everything behind the scenes doesn't back that up doesn't doesn't you know reinforce what that is you can call something an innovation district but if there's no innovation happening what does that brand do? You can call something an entertainment district, but if it's not that entertaining or it's not that funky or it's not that cool, like what's, what's the point? I think that the most authentic brands or the most authentic marketing, and it's funny because we actually were talking about this internally a little bit yesterday. We did a, a presentation to a bunch of our members, and uh, one of my colleagues in, in the presentation said something that was very honest But one of our members was kind of critical of them. Like, you shouldn't say that. That's kind of like behind the scenes kind of stuff. And my response was, no, I don't think you did anything wrong. I think our brand as Strong Towns is a very honest, very transparent, very open brand. That's who we are. We're not some slick package marketing thing where we pretend that we remember everything that was ever said to us. Of course, we take notes and write things down. You know, that's who we are. I think that when you are inauthentic to your brand... You can try to pretend you're something you're not, and it won't, it won't work. It, it, it will fall flat. And I, I think cities make this mistake time and again. Th- this article said at the end, and I think this is really good, they said the fundamental misunderstanding here is they fundamentally understood the organic, spontaneous nature of cities. Places evolve because of the people who live and work in them. You can influence that, but you can't force people to do things that don't make sense to them. And I think if you're going to say, this is our justice division, this is our innovation center, this is our entertainment district, and treat people like they're chess pieces, you're just going to move around and be like, okay, now entertain. Okay, now be you know innovative. <laughs> you're not going to wind up with something that, that works. It's going to be a vision incompatible with people. I think that's what makes me sad is I might be being too idealistic here. I recognize that people are very, very similar all over the world. There was something kind of generous and beautiful about the New Zealanders that I interacted with at CNU that were part of this Christchurch rebuild, at least initially. I had a fondness for them. And part of it was the the kind of quirky way they talk and they look at things and their culture, but they were also kind, generous people. And I've kind of personified the people of Christchurch and the people of New Zealand in this way. You know, I know when the, the Lord of the Rings movies came out, they all got sick of being thought of as hobbits and, <laughs> you know, shirelings and all this. And and I get that. But but there is something being from America that you kind of it's not a stretch to look at a country that had two months of COVID and hasn't had an affection for over a year now as being a pretty remarkable special place, full of remarkable special people. And to see that they did something so extraordinarily ordinary as opposed to what their actual brand is. I think that's what really like guts me. You know, that's what really like makes me sad about this whole thing.
0: Yeah. It's disappointing. And you know, if you want to make a district, the first thing that you need to do to start is to say, what are people doing here? Like, <laughs> like Amen. are people musicians? Are people artists? Are are people justice Center type of people. I mean, it's like what what are people doing?
1: What's going and on then in you, this place? Yeah, <laughs>
0: and and then if you're the type of person who can facilitate development and make things happen, then you work with people to. I mean, that that's just what I don't quite understand because you need to leverage the creativity of others. That's the reason personally I, I get so annoyed with the idea that planning should be trying to manage outcomes or micromanaging the people who are there. It's, it, it assumes that the person who's facilitating that knows what needs to happen. And I think that that is just so inherently wrong. And we ought to be seeing what other people are doing already. And then if you can facilitate something that that produces a district or produces something that is going to be a benefit to society, then you can help to facilitate that. But, but you can't just dictate what happens in a place it just seems really odd to me that that we go to this point and that that's kind of the conventional way of doing things
1: well i feel like this is the the lesson of urban renewal that we keep forgetting you know if you look at urban renewal part of it has been recast now the the, the part that's critical of it is we went into poor black neighborhoods and kick people out and, and rebuild things. And yes, that's part of the narrative. And that's a, that's a horrible part of what happened. But I, I feel like the real narrative we should cling to is we went to neighborhoods of poor black people and we said, we know better than you what your place should be. And in fact, the way that you have built and managed and, and taken care of and loved this place is wholly inadequate. And we have a better vision for what that should be. So step aside while we fix it for you. And, of course, the end result not only did they did the people who were there not own uh and not recognize and not love and not have ownership of but didn't love them back i mean didn't it wasn't actually built for them by them and, and I think this is the really hard part today in our culture because we look around and you know we can see so many injustices that need to be addressed and so many things that need to be fixed and so many wrongs that need to be righted and I think you know as an affluent society our our, Our gut instinct is to go in and like clear the decks and let's fix this. That is an approach that lacks all humility. And we can see this repeated over and over again how, when we don't go in with humility and start where people are and work from that point with them, with them leading and us being a servant following in a sense, we wind up with these really bad outcomes. Outcomes that are not just, are not moral, you know, don't create the greatest amount of human flourishing possible, we create things that planners think look good on a drawing. And that is not good enough anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, we can make anything look good on a drawing. So let's be <laughs> honest. No, totally. I mean, we we could probably draw a mall and it would look good on a drawing. So that's gorgeous. that's the thing you need to be careful about is that lots of things look great on drawings, but... But yeah, the, I think that point you bring up about not assuming that we know all the answers in the end is, I mean, we struggle with that today. That's that's happening today. And it is incredibly important that we're, we're not just deciding what we think our version of utopia will be and then just moving everybody out of the way and then applying that. That is not the right way to do things. And we just can't seem to stop doing it. So...
1: But absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the closer you get to absolute power, I think the more... Let me close with this. I think it's important to recognize that the people who did the plan that ultimately got adopted in Christchurch are almost certainly not bad people. They almost certainly had the public's good in mind. They almost certainly believed they were doing right for everybody. I'm sure the developers that went in there felt that, you know, yes, the developments were aligned with their business model, but they were aligned with their business model in a way that would benefit humanity, that benefit the people of Christchurch. I'm sure that everyone's intentions here were fairly good. were you know, decent all the way around. It's not that people are bad. It's that when we use these kind of top-down, they could get the best and the brightest together and have them put together a plan and then give them the money to do it, you lose that whole organic feedback loop that is so important to making a place work.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. And before we conclude, we are going to do the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that's we've been listening to, reading, watching, just anything that has been captivating our time lately. So Chuck, what do you have for us this week?
1: So I have been reading this fantastic book, By Avi Loeb called Extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth. I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago, there was this interstellar object that passed through our solar system. We actually, and now that I'm reading the book, understand that we overtook this object and it passed through our solar system. And they said, you know, this is uh, very unique, it's very different. We're trying to figure out what it is. There's a guy from Harvard, he's a professor of physics, uh, who has together a hypothesis that he says is the best fit for explaining this and he says you know it it was something that was built by a different civilization out in the cosmos that uh, was left there by them and has just you know wound up flying through our solar system i find it fascinating for two reasons one well let's just say this if you think that there are intelligent life forms out there. It's something that can never be disproven, like you can't like disprove that because lack of confirmation is not. But it's something that ultimately could be proven. So it's an interesting kind of conundrum because there aren't two like provable, non-provable hypotheses. Mm -hmm. But the the thing that's fascinating to me is that. We have now progressed to the point where we have started to think about what interstellar space travel would look like and what the technology would look like. And when we look out and we find things, we start to see things that look like what we imagine them to be if we develop them. And I I think that that's fascinating because the discovery of science is basically taking things that we all agree are kind of true or all agree are fanciful and untrue and turning those on its head. And this is one of those where. You know, his biggest, his biggest kind of insight in the book is that as a Harvard professor, he is on the borderline of being branded a heretic for even discussing this topic because it's so fanciful and crazy. Yet, when you look at the data and the evidence, this is actually probably the most likely explanation for something that, in terms of what we know, a more natural explanation doesn't fit the data. And so if you're interested in science and you're interested in the scientific method and the scientific way of approaching things, this is an absolutely fascinating uh, dissertation on this amuamua, this object that went through our solar system, the measurements they did, what effect that has, and then how science kind of works itself through these paradigm-shifting conundrums. Amazing book. I've, I've loved it
0: yeah i don't know if you know this about me but i love learning about like ufos and things like that like i love documentaries on the subject interviews with scientists i think that that is so interesting and there's a lot of like you know craziness in that whole field of study which is why i think that a lot of scientists don't get taken seriously right away but There is a lot of legitimacy in in some of the things that they find, and I think it's just fascinating to to wonder about. There's a lot of stars in the sky, so the probability...
1: (laughs) If you're just into math, yeah. It's interesting because we are probably within a decade of having some type of confirmation or disconfirmation of there being microbial life, ancient or current, on the planet Mars and maybe other you know, planets or moons within the solar system. And if you study like Fermi's paradox, you'd start to look at the, oh, now I can't think of the equation. You start looking at the equation and, and, you know, recognizing that we've now kind of opened things up, that there can be life on more than one planet. It really changes kind of the base assumptions and really kind of opens your mind up scientifically to a whole... A whole new paradigm. and i I do think that's an interesting one to explore. and I, I I've wondered, like what effect will this have on our understandings of ourselves and our place in the solar system and our place in the universe and and our you know just our place in in time is a very humbling kind of thing. and i I would recommend this book. it's It was a cool thought process to go through,
0: maybe it'll humble us to the point that we stop. Pretending to be Robert Moses every time we maybe
1: <laughs> you and I should talk. You and I should do an aliens podcast once because I I have some of my own theories. Not that there's like little green men walking among us, but about how civilizations of the past may have interpreted them that come out of like the age of exploration and stuff, and how European sailors interacted with. Uh, Polynesians and different societies that were like island societies as kind of a metaphor, and uh, I don't know. I find it interesting too. So we should maybe we'll maybe we'll start a we'll start a side UFO podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Like there aren't enough of those.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there aren't enough of those. (laughs) That would be great, though. We should talk about that maybe offline so that our audience doesn't think we're crazy people. Well, so that's funny that you bring this up because I have a weird book to share today too. That's kind of off brand for me, I guess. Um, So I'm currently reading a book that was released back in 2019. It's called Chaos by Tom O'Neill. So this is a nonfiction book that covers a journalist's 20-year-long deep dive into the Charles Manson case. And the writer of this book was, he's a journalist that was originally assigned this topic on, it was like a three month project and it became a 20 year project for him. And he has probably uncovered the most information of anybody on this case. He uncovered a lot of new information. And and the interesting thing that I thought was interesting about this book is that it follows his perspective firsthand in excruciating detail. And it's amazing that it came from that perspective because you really get a sense of what it takes to try to find this information. I mean, he talks about his experience going to police departments, sitting down with people, sitting down with people multiple times, cross-referencing people's stories and their personal accounts of what happened. He doesn't really have like like a conclusion. I mean, there's a lot of questions in this story that aren't really answered. And I don't think that they ever will be about this case, but this is something, this case I've always been interested in since I was a little kid. So when this book came out, I was like, I, I have to read it.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. It's, it's particularly fascinating in, in the context of what we are starting to understand about people's memories and recollection and recalling and kind of resaving things in your brain changes your memories over time. My mom was, you know, obviously of, of the age where that would have been a big story. I'm a little too young for that. I know my mom was very interested in it kind of from a news standpoint from that way. So maybe I'll share that one with her.
0: I feel like with my generation, it, the Charles Manson story, I don't know why, but I know a lot of people who are really interested in that story. Maybe it's been long enough that. People now are again interested in it, but, and there's a lot of mystery behind it. And, you know, there's of course a lot of conspiracy theories that people like to ask about with the Charles Manson story. So at this point, it's kind of come back up again. People are interested in what happened there. And this journalist, it seems that his conclusion is that there are a lot of documents that are not ever going to be available and just things that he can't find anymore. So so there are no conclusions, unfortunately.
1: Well, it's it's got over 4,100 Amazon ratings. So clearly wow. a lot of people are reading this book. And uh, yeah, it's resonating with people. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty amazing. I mean, it's ranked 817th in Amazon right now, which is like a ridiculously popular high rating. So I'm guessing a lot of people in our audience have actually read it too. So.
0: Wow! Wow! I didn't realize how popular it was. Well, it's a very good book, and it's it's the way it's written is fascinating because it's because it's be, coming from his point of view. You get this sense about how difficult it actually is to try to get the truth out of a complicated story, especially one that is from the past.
1: Right. Right. Very yeah. cool. Thanks. Very Annie. cool.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Chuck. And thank you everyone for listening today, listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck.
1: Thank you. Take care.